We are in the midst of a series that we are calling A Place to Call Home. And as we have been noting in the stories that happened after Easter, we see images over and over again about about the family of God, of, of loving one another as brothers and sisters, about what it means that we are all children of God. Several times, including in the text that you'll hear in just a few moments, uh, the word abide appears, inviting us to dwell, to abide in the presence and in the love of Jesus Christ. The text that you're going to hear this morning is from the letter known as 1 John. Now, there isn't a lot of agreement about uh, among scholars about, about the origins of this letter. In fact, whether or not it's a letter is up to some debate. Some think that it was a sermon. Many believe that it was written by the author of the Gospel of John. It has a lot of the same vocabulary and a lot of syntax. The style is the same. Many of the same themes appear. Most believe that 1 John was written in order to clarify or interpret what the Gospel of John says. In many ways, it's sort of the first commentary on the Gospel of John whether it's a letter, whether it's a commentary, whether it's a sermon, what is clear is that it was written for a community in order to help them apply the message and the meaning of John's gospel to their lives. The author seems to be concerned that that the church members seem to be falling away from some of the truths that are central to who they are, about what it means to be a part of a community of faith, most especially what they should believe about Jesus, that he was God's son, that he was the full revelation of God's self, that he was God with skin on, if you will, and and that that belief should be revealed in their actions, the way that they live their life, and in particular, in the way that they love one another. Today's scripture reading is found in 1 John Chapter 3, verses 16 through 24. Here begins the reading. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God and we receive from him whatever we ask because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. All who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit that he has given us. Here ends the reading. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So by this, the author says, by this, we know what love looks like. 
that he, that Jesus laid down his life for us and that we ought to lay down our lives for others. He seems to be saying that, that in dying on the cross for us, that Jesus showed the ultimate act of love and that we are called to follow Christ in that same kind of love. Jack Canfield tells a story about a little girl by the name of Liza who was diagnosed with a rare form of blood cancer. And none of the treatments that were tried seemed to be successful. Her only chance for any type of recovery appeared to be a blood transfusion from her eight-year-old brother who had the same blood type, who had the same uh, antibodies that she needed in order to combat that illness. The doctor explained to her brother the situation and asked the little boy if he would be willing to donate his blood to his sister. Without hesitation, the little boy said, yes, yes, I will do it if it will save Liza. And he offered up his arm and they began to draw his blood. And as the transfusion progressed, he lay in the bed next to his sister and managed a brave smile. And after a few moments, he he looked up at his parents and with trembling in his voice and tears in his eyes, he simply asked, how soon until I start to die? Well, in that moment, the parents realized that, that they had done a poor job of explaining the situation, that the boy had misunderstood the doctor, that he thought he was going to give her all of his blood. And yet, without hesitation, he was willing to die for his sister. Now, I'm willing to bet that no matter how old we are, that most of us have someone in our life that we are willing to die for. Maybe it's a child, a spouse, a parent, a sibling, maybe even a best friend. Only you can know who that person is for you, who those people are in your lives. Unfortunately, though, Most of us are not called on to die for that purpose, for that person, or for anyone. However, in this passage that we just heard, the circle of who we are called to die for gets expanded beyond just those that we are close to because it's calling us to love as Christ loved Sometimes I think the idea of dying for someone else in order to demonstrate our love can seem a little abstract. As I said, it's not something that we're often called to do. However, if we keep reading on in the passage that we just heard, we come across this idea about love that hits a little closer to home. This idea of actually, literally dying for someone. The author goes on to say, how does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother and sister in need and yet refuses to help? He seems to be saying that if we have the resources to help, if we have the ability to help and don't, well, then how can we claim to have God's love in us? Like I said, this hits a little closer to home. As someone would say, in that moment, he quits preaching and starts meddling. The author seems to be more than just implying that that loving God is intrinsically connected to our actions. That we can claim to love all we want with our words, but until our love is clear in our actions, it's not actually clear at all. 
that the way we love, that how we love, how we have that love of God in us, it isn't clear until it shows up in our actions. Richard Rohr is a Catholic priest, and he's been writing a lot these days, and he's becoming quite popular in saying some important things, things that we should all do well to, to pay attention to. And one of the things that he's been saying is that the way you live is more important than what you believe. He says this, he says, Christianity is a lifestyle. It's a way of being in the world that is simple. It's nonviolent. It's shared and loving. However, we've made it into a clever religion in order to avoid the lifestyle itself. One could then be warlike greedy and racist and selfish and vain and still believe that Jesus is their personal Lord and Savior. But the world, he says, has no time for such silliness anymore. Christianity is a lifestyle, he says. The way that you live, the way that you love is more important than what you believe. Or maybe you could say it this way, that what you truly believe isn't clear until it shows up in the way that you live. This is true for us individually, and it's equally true for us collectively as well. We can say as a community of faith, as a body of believers, that we have open minds and loving hearts. But until that is reflective in the way that we live out our collective faith, that doesn't mean a whole lot. Philip Yancey tells the story of a friend in Chicago who was working with poor people in the city. And he was visited one time by a prostitute who was in dire straits. She was homeless. She was unable to buy food for herself or for her daughter. And Yancey's friend asked her, have you ever considered going to a church for help? And in that moment, the woman seemed horrified. Church? Church, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They'll just make me feel worse. You see, for her, she had experienced church as a place of of judgment, of inhospitality. Now, you've heard me say before that there are essentially two kinds of churches. Those that have their arms wide open to all of God's people. That God's love and grace and welcome is for everyone. And then there are those with arms folded who feel it's their job to tell people how bad they are. Sadly, if you go to most churches in the country today, what you'll hear, what you'll see is that you're not accepted as you are. That you're lost in life because you haven't done the right things. That you don't pray enough. That you don't believe the right things. And ultimately, that's why your life is a mess. But that's not the story that you'll hear here. Here we tell a different story. A better story. And I'm not saying that because we're bragging. But but just because we believe it's more in line with what it means to follow Jesus. When we read the Gospels, when we read the stories of Jesus, what we see is that Jesus is constantly welcoming, including people that the religious folks seemed hell-bent on excluding. Jesus was extravagant in his welcome, in his accepting of people. 
We see this time and time again. Jesus taking people as they are, not as they ought to be. Have you ever noticed that not a single time does Jesus ever call someone a sinner? Not once. Not one time. There is one time when he says to a woman who's been caught in an adulterous affair to go and sin no more and that her sins are forgiven, but he never once called anyone a sinner. Instead, those people that were considered to be sinners, he ate with them. He sat with them. He, he prepared a place at the table for them. And that's good news, isn't it? It's good news because the truth is, is that none of us are pure. None of us are clean. None of us are perfect. And we all fall short of the glory of God, the glory that God intends for us. But yet Jesus refuses to let that define us. He looks beyond the labels and beyond the stigma and the convenient definitions. And he sees us all as children of God, members of the family of faith. He forgives us. He restores us. He offers us new life. And if we believe that, if we really believe that new life is possible, then that belief must be reflected in our actions. We are a congregation that says proudly, that says boldly, that all are welcome. We even put that on a sign on the side of our building. And we believe that, that all are welcome, but yet we have to continually ask ourselves, does that belief get reflected in our actions, the way that we live, the way that we welcome one another? Because truthfully, Churches that announce that all are welcome, they're a dime a dozen. Nancy Steves is a pastor in the Presbyterian Church who also happens to be gay. And she points out that while a lot of churches say that all are welcome, that for a lot of people, they have come to know that these words mean that they are welcome to live a lie, that they are welcome to hide a piece of their identity, they are welcome to, to pretend to be something that they're not. You see, abiding in love, having God's love abide in us, the evidence of this shows up in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we love one another. And, and there is no one that is to be excluded from this circle. That means liberals and fundamentalists, and everyone in between. It means the tree hugger and the NRA card-carrying member. It means the American and the Mexican and the Afghan and the Palestinian. It means the Christian and the Jew and the Muslim, the Buddhist and the atheist. It means those who are gay and those who are straight it means those who are pacifists as well as those who are soldiers, those who are protesters as well as those who are policemen. And none of these are to be excluded from this circle of those that we love. Because how does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods, who sees a brother and sister in need and yet refuses to help, 
refuses to love, refuses to welcome them. You see, for far too long, the main message of the Christian faith, those Christians who spoke with the louded voices, that message has been too narrow. So what if instead the message of the church was not so much that you have to be different, that you have to be better, but simply come as you are, that you are welcome here right now as you are, that God loves you as you are, not as you think you should be. Sign out front says all are welcome. Friends, people are watching. And the students across the street, they are wondering, do they really believe that? Is it really true? Or are they just saying that? And so may they look to us and find through our actions, through the way that we live, through the way that we love, may they see and may they hear that in this place, all are welcome. That in this place, for you, there is a place at the table. Amen.